Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Pastor Chris started us off on a new series last week called Unsung Heroes, and um, so I'm going to be picking it up today. Now, as I was preparing for this message, I started thinking, how, how do we read our Bibles? Like, how should we read our Bibles? How should we read them? And I find that the questions that I ask often get me in trouble. They just do. A lot of people ask, you know, why do you, I, I ask lots of questions, and then people come to me, why do you ask so many questions? You know, and, but I have to think this way. I have, to, I have to think in questions all the time. And so, you know, as I was thinking about the Bible this week, I realized, you know, the Bible is a marvelous book. It has layers and layers of meaning. It's all about God. But there are bits that are left out of the Bible that I'm so curious about. I'm just so curious about them. And I think that we're allowed to imagine what it might have been like to be in the Bible with the bits that were left out. For example, I think there is a uh, scene that is left out of David and Goliath. I think there's a scene that's left out. You know, David, he actually killed Goliath with a stone, a sling and a stone, right? I actually thought this week, did he just knock him out and then he had to go take the sword to kill him, finish him? No, he killed him with a stone. That's what the Bible tells us. And then the next thing he does is he takes Goliath's own sword and lops off Goliath's head. And I go, David... That's so unnecessary. It's completely superfluous. That's a good word, kids. Superfluous. Unnecessary. It's excessive. And I, I think the scene that's missing, though, is when he got home. And his mom was like, I'm not cleaning your tunic for you. You didn't need to cut off that giant's head. He said, I'm sick of washing bear blood and lion blood out of your clothes. You can wash your own giant blood stains out of your clothes this time. You know, I think that was missing in Scripture. And I think we could have learned some good leadership lessons from that. But these details of the Bible, I'm convinced that when God, God gives us a sense of humor, he gives us an imagination, and he invites us to live what the characters are going through. So when we use our imagination, you can feel the heat of Sodom on your back as Lot runs away. Or you can fly over the nighttime battles of Gideon, or you can feel the earth tremble at the base of Mount Sinai. I think God invites us into these stories. How did people feel? How did they respond? What were their relationships like? Who were their friends? What were their hidden talents? Now, the Bible is all about God, but I think that when we enter into it with our actual imagination, oh, then every time we pick up that book, it's not, it's not just a story that we read. It's a question of what will I see and feel today as I enter into God's great story. I was listening to a podcast yesterday on my way back up to camp, and it was on the imagination and consciousness as C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and uh, the other guy, the other inkling, uh, and how they understood logic and imagination. You know, C.S. Lewis said, here is, a, here is a story, but it is about Christianity. And he struggled with that, with that logic and imagination. It's brilliant. It's a good struggle. I think God wants us to use it. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about Abigail. We only have a little bit of her story. 
Just a tiny little bit. We have to fill in the gaps as we think about it. And today we're going to talk about a different story. We're going to talk about a story of Miriam. Miriam. But we're going to start with the story of Miriam when she was a little girl hiding her baby brother Moses in the river. And can you imagine how she might have felt as she saw the princess of Egypt coming down into the river that day? And the Bible says she came to bathe. And I started wondering this week, you know, bathe? Why would the princess need to bathe in a river? That seems strange to me. First of all, there's crocodiles in that river. Although there's evidence to show that she may have been bathing in the only place of the Nile that doesn't have crocodiles, which is wise. <laughs> Somebody told me yesterday, after the service, that when he was living in Zaire, which is now the DR Congo, that uh, his friends taught him how to swim in the river without getting eaten by alligators. Or crocodiles, I should say. You swim vertical, not horizontal. And then the crocodiles don't eat you. And I said, I got a much simpler way to not be eaten by crocodiles. And it has to do with not entering the river in the first place. That's a terrifying thought. Can you imagine, imagine being Miriam, wondering what's going to happen? But the princess, we don't know her name, but there are many scholars and historians who have looked into what she might have been actually doing there. Do you know there's a theory, and it's just a theory, just a theory, that she was actually a childless woman. She didn't have any children of her own. And there's a, a chance that she might have been down at the river to worship a god named Happi or Happy, who caused the river to flood every season, and it would, it would water the, the, the land so that the crops would grow. He was the god of fertility. And some people believe that she might have been down at the river trying to ask the god of the flooding of the Nile to give her a child. Maybe that's why she was there. And those details, I get it. They're theories. They're maybe even conspiracy theories in some case. But doesn't it add a layer to the story that we're the reading about to understand the culture of the time? Today we're going to look at this story. But I'm not going to tell you the story of Miriam. I'm going to let Miriam tell you in her own words what it was like. Now, for the adults in the room, this is the children's feature. Don't worry. The whole service won't be animated, okay? Well, I might be animated, but the service won't be animated, okay? And so we're going to watch a short video now of Miriam and what she experienced when she was hiding by the reeds. I remember it like it was yesterday. My father's name was Amram, and my mother was Jochebed. We were from the Hebrew tribe of Levi, the tribe from which the priests of the tabernacle came. I didn't know it when I was a young girl, but two of the greatest priests in our history would be my brothers, Aaron and Moses. My youngest brother, Moses, he almost didn't live long enough to leave his cradle. The days were so dark and so evil. The Pharaoh of Egypt worried that the Hebrew people were becoming too numerous and too strong. To try and break us apart, he decided he would kill every baby boy as soon as they were born. But God always watched over us. He gave us two Egyptian nurses who told the king that our mothers had their babies too quickly, and by the time they arrived to help, the babies were already born. Pharaoh was angry and ordered that all little Hebrew boys be thrown into the Nile River. My parents were terrified, and so was I. We loved Moses. But my mother had a plan. She took a woven basket and covered it in tar so that it would act like a little boat. 
Then each day when my parents went to work, I would take the basket to the Nile and place the little baby in the reeds, keeping a watchful eye for Egyptian soldiers and crocodiles. I would pretend I was washing clothes or I was gathering reeds for weaving, but secretly I was watching my baby brother, praying that he wouldn't cry at a time when I couldn't reach him. One day, God ended our family's fear. I had placed Moses in the river where I could easily reach him if he began to fuss. I was weaving reeds when a line of camels arrived along the riverbank. I was stunned when a princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, stepped down with her attendants close by. There were soldiers too, and I was very fearful. I prayed that Moses wouldn't cry. Why was she there? Did she know about the baby in the reeds? Perhaps the princess had come to the river to worship the god Hapai, who caused the river to flood each spring and water the land. I thought she was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen, but she looked very distraught as she entered the water with her offering, a basket of fruit and nuts. She let it float down the river, and the attendants with her sang a song of worship to Hapai. I watched as the basket of fruit slowly floated past the place where I had hidden Moses. The eyes of the princess were following the basket as well. I held my breath. Would she see the basket covered in tar? She didn't and turned to leave the river. But as she did, Moses began to fuss. She paused and turned toward his quiet whimpers. She put up her hand to stop the guards and attendants. When she saw the basket, she gasped, her hand flying to her mouth. There's a baby hidden in here. The attendants murmured amongst themselves, and the guards looked alarmed. The captain of her guards stepped forward and said, But your highness, this is a Hebrew baby. I'll never forget the look she gave that soldier. She didn't have to say a word. This was her baby, and she wouldn't tolerate anyone suggesting otherwise. Then one of her attendants came forward and said, My lady, this baby is still feeding from his mother. We must find a way to keep him nourished. At that very moment, I felt the hand of Yahweh, the God of Israel, on me. I knew what I had to do. I jumped up and boldly walked right past the guards and the attendants to the princess. Bowing low before her, I told her that my mother could nurse the child for her until he was old enough to eat regular food. The princess was overjoyed, and I brought her to my mother. Can you imagine my mother's surprise when her daughter walked into the house with the princess of Egypt? But that is the story of how our God saved my baby brother and also gave the princess a son of her own. Hapai, the god of flooding, did nothing. Our God is the one who saves, and he used me, a young girl, to speak to a princess. Moses became the leader of our people, and many years later he led us out of Egypt and away from slavery. It was God's plan all along to save him so that Moses could do this great task for God. What if Moses had been found and killed? Would we still be in slavery? Never, for God wouldn't have allowed it. God's plans, they never fail. I just want you to know something. When I put this on YouTube tomorrow and Pixar calls, I am out of here. So Chris better come back from vacation because I won't be preaching if Pixar calls. I'm just saying. I will move to wherever their headquarters is. <laughs> Can you just imagine being Miriam? That little girl at the river? Oh my goodness. 
Of course, Miriam's story doesn't end, pardon me, doesn't end with the story of baby Moses in the reeds. That's not where it ends. But there isn't a lot about Miriam in the Bible. The next time we hear about her is when she has crossed the river, uh, the, the Red Sea. And now she's on the other side after this incredible exodus out of Egypt. Moses, her brother, is now 80 years old. And he's leading everybody away from slavery. And what does she do on the other side? She leads all of the women of Israel in a song of worship. It says she picked up a tambourine and she wrote a song. And that song included praising God and then saying how the Pharaoh's army got crushed and drowned. It's a great song of worship. (laughs) But the next time we hear about her, the story is different. In Numbers 12, we have another story about Miriam. And this time she's with her brother Aaron, and they're complaining. And what are they complaining about? They've been really looking for a reason to complain to God about Moses. Now, they use an excuse that he married a woman, a Cushite woman, as a, as a reason to criticize him. But really, there was jealousy in their hearts. Listen to what they said. <clears throat> Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? And then it says this, but the Lord heard them. <laughs> It's like when the teacher walks in and you're kind of messing around and you're caught. So what does the Lord do? Immediately, the Lord called to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses is probably thinking, what did I do? Go to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went to the tent of meeting. Then the Lord descended in the pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Aaron and Miriam, he called out, and they stepped forward. And the Lord said to them, now listen to what I say. If there were prophets among you, I, the Lord, would reveal myself in visions. I would speak to them in dreams, but not with my servant Moses. Of all my house, he is the one that I trust. I speak to him face to face, clearly, not in riddles. He sees sees the Lord as he is. So why were you not afraid to criticize my servant Moses? And it says that the Lord was very angry with them, and he departed. And there were consequences for what Miriam had done. Big consequences. And you go, how did that happen? How do you have this brave, you know, young, maybe 13, 14-year-old protecting her her brother in the reeds, grow up all these years, and now in her old age, she's criticizing the brother that she had a hand in saving? You see, at some point, every hero of Scripture becomes less than heroic. And we might think about what happened in those big gaps of time, but the truth is we don't have to think all that hard. The 14-year-old always wants to be 16. The 16-year-old always wants to be 18. 40-year-olds wish that they were either 25 again or retired, and so they're confused. (laughs) People who are single, they want to be married. And sometimes people who are married wish that they weren't. We always want something. And the human heart has this kind of predisposition towards discontentment, being unhappy with where we are. And I think I know one of the reasons why. And it has nothing to do, uh, again, it has something to do with this thing of unsung heroes. And so I'm going to just go to a a parable that Jesus told. It's a famous parable. You'll, You'll know it right away. In my Bible, it's called the parable of the talents. 
In the NLT, it's called the parable of the silver bags. Bags of silver, probably. Not silver bags, (laughs) but the bags of silver. And you know this story. In it, Jesus is teaching what it's like to be his servant. And he says, it's kind of like this. There was a rich master, and uh, he had three servants, and he was going away on a trip for a long trip. There was going to be a a, a long time that he was gone. And so what does he do? He gives some of his money to his servants. The first servant, he gives five bags of silver or five talents. The second, he gives two bags of silver. And the last one, he gives one bag of silver. And you know what happens. The one with five goes and invests it. He maybe invests in a sheep farm. And the sheep do well, and he gets back from the business five more bags of silver. That's 100% return on his investment. That's very good. So he now has 10 bags of silver. The second one, he goes out, he does the same thing. He invests his two bags of silver, gets two in return, but the last one takes his one bag of silver, and what does he do? Buries it. Doesn't even put it in a bank. Buries it, hides it, because he's worried about losing the money. And when the master comes back, he says, why did you do this? And he said, well, master, I know you're a very strict man. I didn't want to disappoint you by losing your money. I wanted to protect it. And he said, yeah, but the other guys, they invested it. And he gets really, really angry. But you know what? The guys we always talk about are the first one and the third one. The first one and the third one get all the airtime. You know who I want to talk about? The second one. The one with two bags of silver. Nobody ever talks about, you know, two bags of silver. But I think that the guy with two bags of silver, he's most of us. He was Miriam, and he was, and he's certainly me. You know, in every story like this, there's a hero. Every story, every good story has a hero. You know, in this story, it's the guy who turned 10 bags or five bags into 10. Miriam is the hero of the story of baby Moses. And then there's the villain. Pharaoh was the villain in the story of Moses. And in this one, it was the the guy with one bag of silver. And the really interesting thing is, everybody wants to be the hero. But most people can't be the hero. There can only be one greatest in the room. Only one hero. And the rest are extras in the movie. They're the background noise. They're the people who make the story look real and feel real. But they're not the star. And it bothers us. I think it bothers us tremendously. I think it's funny that sometimes when people can't be the hero and they don't want to be an extra, they choose to be the villain. How many people at baptism time say, I've got no testimony because I just haven't been bad enough? You don't want to be the villain. And when we can't be the hero, we want to be as close to the hero as possible. So that I can say that hero, I know him. He's my friend. And we can live off the coattails of someone else. People have been doing this throughout all of time. Throughout all of time. In 1 Corinthians, Paul has a little story that that is exactly about this. And he's writing to his friends. He had planted this church in a city called Corinth. And years later, he wasn't leading it anymore. He was a church planter. He would start it. He would get it going over a couple years. And then he would move on and plant another church. And this church was in disarray. It was falling apart. And so he wrote a few letters to help them try and get back on the same page. And what was this particular fight about that he was writing about in this case? He was writing about who, uh, no, the fight was about who was the, the leader of their church. 
You know, some people, they said, oh, we follow Paul. He was the church planter. He was our first pastor. We're following him. And other people said, no, 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 no. We follow the guy who took over from him. We follow Apollos. Apollos is our pastor now. You follow him. It could be the same as, I'm loyal to Pastor Ray. No, no, no. Pastor Chris is our, is our pastor now. And that could cause a division. That's exactly what happened in Corinth. And this is what Paul says. Paul was so frustrated. He must have just, when he heard about this, he must have just buried his head on his table. He said this, I planted the seed in your heart. I, Paul, planted the seeds in your heart. And and Apollos watered it. But it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What is important is that God makes it grow. And you see, this is the point of the story. God is the hero, full stop. That's it. God is the hero. You want to be close to a hero and become known by someone? Get close to God and be known by him. He's a hero worth being known as the friend of. And God, the reason he's the hero is because he always wins. God always wins. That makes him the hero. And how do I know that that makes him a hero? Because nobody who, always, nobody who has to deal with people like us and always wins can be, nothing, can be anything but a hero. You understand what I'm saying? God has us to work with, and he still wins. He still wins. God had Miriam to work with, and he won. And he kept winning. It's an incredible thing. You want to know why God's plans always succeed? Simple. It's because he's God. That's why. It's because he's God. Many people get bent out of shape over this. They don't like it. They don't like the fact that God is God and that they're not and that they're a a two-bag of silver person or a two-talent Tom. (laughs) They don't like that. But you know what? God isn't interested in giving everybody five bags of silver. He wasn't interested in making Miriam the leader of the people. He wasn't interested in that. God always puts the exact right piece in the exact right place at exactly the right time. That's what God does. Think about it. A pagan, childless Egyptian princess was at a river at exactly the same time as Miriam, at exactly the same place that Moses was hiding in the reeds. Always the right place at the right place at the right time. That's God. That makes him the hero. And the question always comes up, well, if God always wins, then why does he even want to use us in the first place? And you know what? That's a good question, and I don't know the answer to it entirely. You see, God was completely happy in eternity past. Whatever his house looked like back then, he was fine. Chilling with, you know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the eternal crib. It was good. Good life. And then for some reason, he chose to start creating us. And then for some other reason, he started to use us to accomplish his purposes. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know how to blow your mind. God uses us. The question should not be, if God always wins, why does he need me? The question should be, if God always wins, when will you, where will you be when he calls on you? Will you be ready? That's the question we should be asking. Not why does he use us, just thank him that he does and then say, God, make me ready. Make me ready. I have a story about 
a time that I, I wasn't quite ready. I think I've told this story in parts before, but I'm going to tell it again. When I was 20 years old, in October of 2000, I fully gave my heart to Jesus. That was when I fully surrendered. And uh, two weeks after that, I found myself at a worship night in Niverville. It was a, a youth worship night. All the churches got together. It was called Dare to Worship, and it was at the Maranatha Church, and it was very fun. And I was even on the planning committee for this thing before I fully gave my life to Christ. But that's an important detail, not important. I had now given my life to Christ completely. And at this particular worship event, I was going to sing a special number, okay? So I was at the end of the night. I wasn't leading worship. I was just going to do like a special at the end, okay? And uh, so I was waiting for that, and I was enjoying the worship. It was very good. And uh, there was this kid there. His name was Joe. He was two years younger than me. He was 18. And Joe was not there because he loved Jesus, because he didn't know Jesus. <laughs> Joe was there because he loved people. And he was really annoying, he was talking loudly. He was distracting people. You know, somebody was talking from the front. He was talking in your ear. I was like, oh my goodness, does this guy like not know how to behave? You know, starting to get annoying. Then I went up at the end. I led my worship song and I came down. You know who was looking right at me? Joe. Across the whole room. I'll never forget. He was looking right at me, just staring at me uncomfortably. And I thought, uh-oh, Joe wants to talk. That's what I thought. I knew. I knew Joe wants to talk. I wasn't ready. He came up to me after the evening ended. Everybody was kind of starting to leave and hang out and that kind of thing. And he says, and we were talking, you know, you know, we're both farm kids. So we were talking, how was the harvest here? You know, pretending like we know stuff. And, uh, oh yeah, harvest was good. And he goes, well, you know, we should do coffee sometime. And I'm like, yeah, we should do coffee. And he turned to walk out. <laughs> See, he didn't have any questions about God. <laughs> he left. And then he came back. And he said, Tom, half the people in this room are going to be at the same party as me in a few hours doing exactly the same things that I'm doing. He said, but when you sang, there was something different. I want what you have. And so I had a Bible with me, and I had the, um, the bridge diagram in my cover so that I wouldn't forget it. And I, I showed him with the bridge and the cross, making the bridge across, you know, for man and God, so we could be united with God again. I said, this is what it means to be a Christian. I said, when, when you ask me what I have that you want, this is what it is. He didn't know that I had just fully given my life to Jesus. I had just actually crossed over that cross fully two weeks earlier. He said, I don't know if I'm ready. I said, no problem. And this was proof that the Holy Spirit was living in me because I was very pushy and manipulative. I said, no problem, Joe. You take some nights to think about it, and then we'll meet again in three days, okay? So three days later was Halloween night. He had to go trick-or-treating, because that's what 18-year-olds in Niverville do. <laughs> they go trick-or-treating. I don't know if it was for candy or to scare little children. I didn't ask. He wasn't redeemed yet, so I didn't judge him. And he came to my house that I was renting from my dad on the farm. It was just two of us in the house that night. And he sat in my living room, and I, t I brought him through the bridge diagram again. I said, this is what it means to be a Christian. When you say you want something, that you see something in me that you don't have and you want it, this is what it is. And he says, Tom, I, I just don't know. And we talked for an hour. And finally, I just said, Joe, what is it? What's holding you back? And you know what he said? He said, Tom, I, I, I know there's a verse in the Bible that says if I don't hate my parents, I can't be a Christian. I said, well, I don't know that verse. And I thought about it, and I was like literally praying, God, what is that verse that he's thinking about? And all of a sudden, I remembered, oh, yeah, 
Jesus did say something like that, but you misunderstood it. Jesus said, your love for me should be so great that it makes even the love you have for your parents look like hate. I said, it's, but it's not that you hate your parents. It's just that you love God that much more in comparison. And you know what he said? He said, Tom, I don't think I could ever love anyone more than my dad. No one. And I said, you know what? Is that the only thing stopping you from giving your heart to Jesus? He said, yeah. I said, I think God's big enough to deal with that problem. So he gave his heart to Jesus. It was the first time I had actually really led someone to Jesus. And years later, I found out that his favorite verse was Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It says, for, the, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Do you think, do you think that if I hadn't witnessed to Joe that day, that he would have just never been saved? No. I don't believe that for a second. If God is working in the heart of somebody for salvation, he will find a way to save that soul. But for some reason, God said, Tom, I want you to be the guy. This time it's you. And he invited me into his plan for Joe's life. And we became very good friends. We spent a whole year doing Bible studies together. It was incredible. It was just incredible seeing the transformation that God made in his life. But you know what? When it comes to evangelism, I'm a two-talent Tom. I don't do lots of, like, I do lots of evangelism, but I don't often lead people to Jesus across that threshold the first time. I'm not a closer, you might say. I don't have any problem telling people about Jesus. In fact, I do it all the time. I, I, have, I am not ashamed in the least but I don't actually pray with people that they would become a Christian very often. And you know, if I, but think about this, that doesn't mean I'm not ready. I'm always looking for an opportunity. I was on a plane with uh, Pastor Brad going to California in April, and I was looking for an opportunity. And there was this weird looking dude sitting next to us, and I'm like, I got a witness to this guy. And I was waiting for the opportunity, and right as we walked off the plane, I got the opportunity. It was awesome. I gave him a book. I should probably replace that, it was from the library. I said, I think you're going to really enjoy this book. And I left because I, I, I'm trusting him to God. I pray for him so, every so often. But I'm always looking for an opportunity. Because I don't want to be like Miriam. I don't want to have one story from when I was 20, 19 years ago. I don't want to be, I don't want to be 80 one year, one day, and... and, and and saying, hey, remember that time that I, I led that kid to Christ? I don't want to be that. I want to watch. It doesn't matter whether I have the gift of evangelism or not. I'm always looking for the opportunity. You know what, I really, you know what I'm really trying to say here? I'm always trying to make God the hero of my story. I just know that if God chooses to use me, that is an amazing feeling. Amazing. And if you've had that, and I know you have, that is an amazing feeling. But are you still watching for it? You know, very often we make the heroes of Scripture, the Miriams, the Davids, we make those people the heroes of Scripture when God is the hero of Scripture. 
Every hero that you read about on these pages, I promise you, if we don't have the story in here, it was in real life a time when they become less than heroic. They were real people like you and me. They were real people. God is the hero of the story. And do you know what God is also the hero of? History. He's the unsung hero of history. You look at the nation of Israel. How did that ever come about after the Second World War? How did that ever happen? Miracle upon miracle. He's the unsung hero of history. And you know what I think, which is a tragedy? Too often, he's the unsung hero of our lives. How will you today make God the hero of your story? I don't care how little you are or how old you are. There is room in your life to give glory to God for everything he's ever done. That is the point. We were created to worship God, to make him the heroes of our lives. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you that even as this incredible heroic God who saves and saves and saves and doesn't give up and doesn't turn his back and doesn't leave us and doesn't forsake us, the God who says in Psalm 139, I have every single day of your life written in my books, you still choose to use us even though we are unfaithful and we turn our backs and we give other people the glory and we take the glory time and time again. And then we get discontent that we don't have the five bags. We just have two. Father, would you show us a way today that we can live with you as the hero of our lives? I pray that when other people look at us, they would want what we have and that we would not be ashamed not for one minute, that we wouldn't hesitate to say that the reason my life is the way that it is is because of my Jesus, my friend and my Lord. I ask all these things in your name. Amen.